0: Thank you for uh, pressing through the um, weather, and uh, I myself actually bit it outside uh, earlier today right outside the, um, <laughs> right outside the school. Uh, be careful underneath the snow there is ice, and my daughter said of oh, dad i 've only seen you like fall twice in my life I was like well, there's number two, you know? So, so I'm like, well, this is great. Praise the Lord. So anyway, it's good to see you today. And um, guys, it's uh, good to be here today to talk through the topic that we've been going through uh, in this Explore God series. Last week, um, thank you for your patience as um, I was uh, overcoming a flu-like symptoms, but thanks for your prayers. I feel great now. And um, it is, uh, last week we talked about, is Jesus really God, to which we said, uh, absolutely yes. And um, today, um, what we're going to do is we're uh, actually going to talk about something that gives you the basis of your faith, which is, is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible, in fact, reliable? Now, how many people have ever been in a conversation with anybody before where you had to deal with this topic? Okay? How many people in your own soul have actually had to deal with this topic before? All right. well it's good that we're actually uh, diving into this today, and again, um, I wanted to tell you we're going to cover a lot, and so don't worry if you can't take all the notes. Again, the notes will be on the website for you, and not only will they be on the website for you, but we have discussion groups throughout the week that are going to be covering this topic um, in greater depth. In addition to that, we're always happy to talk with you outside of a church service on a Sunday morning. And so if you've got questions even beyond this message, please come and talk to us because that's what we're here for, right? So we're going to dive into this together, but let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word. God to us today. God, we thank you that your word is inexhaustible. Your word is eternal. God, your word will remain and endure forever. God, we're asking you that you would help us today to grow in confidence in not only who you are, but what you've said, and that you've properly and accurately transmitted it to us through your servants. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we go. Guys, um, I'm going to do a little bit more because of the, it's more informational today. We believe that the information can in fact lead to transformation, um, but we need to provide this in a teaching setting today, okay? So as whereas normally I'm interacting with you a bit more, I'm, I'll probably still do that, but I still want to um, give you the information in such a way that it's helpful to you and you can utilize it as a resource going forward. But the reason that we're uh, talking about this topic is the Bible Reliable Today Is because it's literally the foundation of our faith. There is no being a Christian without the Word of God. There is no being a follower of Jesus without properly having an esteem for the Word of God and how to relate with it properly. In fact, whenever we look at uh, the things that Jesus has said about His Word, we see that Jesus had a high esteem of Scripture. Um, When we look at the very beginning, we see that um, God, in Genesis, created, He gives us an account of creation. And then initially, the first attack that the enemy or the adversary had against God and his people was according to his what? It was according to his word. When we see that Adam and Eve were put in the garden and they had unbroken fellowship with God, they needed a basis for their relationship. And even though God walked with them um, in the cool of the day, he was still saying, Everything that you're going to expect from me, everything that you're going to know about me, every, every way that you're going to relate with me properly is based on this word. And we see that Satan, initially in his temptation, which led to the fall of man, actually questioned the authority. And the integrity of God's word, where he said, Did God really say the things that he said, Adam? Did God really say the things that he said, first and foremost, Eve? And so, because they began to doubt his word, they fell into sin ultimately. But when Jesus showed up on the scene, he said specific things about his word. He said things like this on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And whenever he's talking about the law and the prophets, he's talking about about the word of God. He said, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus, in fact, went on on the Sermon on the Mount to say that um, your success in life and ultimately your eternal destiny in God is ultimately dependent upon your right interaction with the Word of God. We are familiar with Jesus and the parable that he gave about the person building their rock either on the sand or on the rock, which is the Word of God. And Jesus said that there will be trials of life and that storms are going to come and beat against your life and your confidence. But if you build on the word, you will in fact be able to stand. And then finally, whenever Jesus in Matthew 24 was talking about the end of the age, he said very clearly, heaven and earth will pass away. But he says, my word will not pass away. So if Jesus had a high esteem of his word and what we understand to be his word is the Bible, then we've also got to understand why, in fact, we should have confidence in his word. So let's break it down. This is going to be for those people who've been reading the Bible for years now. And also, we know there are several people in here who are just starting their journey with the Word of God. And so, that was my story uh, many years ago where I didn't have a church experience. And so, everything was new to me. So, this is going to benefit both parties. It's going to benefit you if you've been reading the Word of God and not knowing why you've been reading it. I mean, people can sometimes say, Amen to that, right? I'm doing it because my mom said to. And matter of fact, my grandma still calls me. The morning and says, did you read your Bible today? Anybody have situations like that? All right, that's fine. But like in other people, it's sort of like you're listening, you're understanding the word of God for what it is, and you're trying to uh, capture it for all that God intended it to be. So the Bible, though hard to understand at times, is a beautiful collection of books that tells the same consistent story throughout, and it's very, very reliable. Now, when we look at the Bible, we've got to understand that if you've never just broken it down, it's a collection of 66 different books written from about 1500 BC to 100 AD by 40 different authors in three different languages. The first 39 books make up the Old Testament and include the law of Moses, the history of the Jewish people, and the foretelling of the Messiah, who would ultimately be the savior of the world and comprises the sacred scriptures of both the Jewish and Christian people. The last 27 books make up the New Testament and were written by eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, documenting his ministry, And explaining God's plan to bring about his kingdom. It also includes the letters about how to live out the gospel. Now, the question is, is that if this is actually the case of what the Bible is, how can we be confident that it's reliable? Well, I'd like to start with a quote by a New Testament scholar named F.F. Bruce. How many people have heard of F.F. Bruce before, okay? Uh, New Testament scholar, and he talked about the uniqueness of the Bible. For this, you can actually close your eyes. I'm going to read this. To you like a bedtime story. Okay? Close your eyes and listen to this smooth melodic tones of. Okay? (laughs) All right. Here we go. The uniqueness of the Bible. F.F. Bruce says this Any part of the human body can only be properly explained in reference to the whole body. And any part of the Bible can only be properly explained in reference to the whole Bible. Each book is like a chapter in the one book we call the Bible. The Bible at first sight appears to be a collection of literature, mainly Jewish. If we inquire into the circumstances into which the various biblical documents were written, we find that they were written at intervals over a space of nearly 1,400 years. The, written wrote, <clears throat> excuse me, the writers wrote in various lands from Italy in the west to Mesopotamia and possibly Persia in the east. The writers themselves were a heterogeneous number of people, not only separated from each other by hundreds of years and hundreds of miles, but belonging to the most diverse walks of life. In their ranks, we have kings, herdsmen, soldiers, legislators, fishermen, statesmen, courtiers, priests, and prophets, a tent making rabbi, and a Gentile physician not to speak of others whom we know nothing of apart from the writings they have left us. The writings themselves belong to a great variety of literary types. They include history, law, which includes civil, criminal, ethical, ritual, and sanitary, religious poetry, didactic treaties, lyric poetry, parable and allegory, biography, personal correspondence, personal memoirs and diaries in addition to the distinctively biblical types of prophecy and apocalyptic. For all that, the Bible is not simply an anthology. There is a unity which binds the whole together. An anthology is compiled by an anthologist, but no anthologist compiled the Bible. Pardon me. You can open your eyes. That will also be on the website but it tells you a little bit about the continuity of the Scripture. Over the course of 1,400 years, how it all was woven together in a unity that really humanity can't discount. We see that throughout that continuity, there were things like prophecy. Some 1,800 prophetic statements can be verified or refuted, and to date, none have ever been refuted. None have ever been refuted. We've spoken before about even how the prophetic writings spoke about Jesus the Messiah, about his life, his miracles, his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, not to mention in the midst of Old Testament Israel, the judgments that would come in advance as discipline to the nation whenever they decided not to obey God and follow his commands. We see that they predicted things that were coming that would only be known if a divine source was actually educating to um, to these events. And we see that none of them have been refuted today. We also see things like textual evidence. Textual evidence, we have more high quality copies of the text than any other historical document. I need to repeat that. We have more high quality copies of the scripture than any other historical document. Now, was the chart able to come through um, today? If we have a chart, that's great. If not, again, it will be online for you. I had a little trouble with the transmission of the uh, chart today. So I'm going to read it to you and you can go back and look later. But many of you remember your university days and studying ancient and um, classical literature. How many people remember those classes, right? Of course. (laughs) So within that, we see that we've got to understand some of the ways that we've understood history based on some familiar authors. I'll just mention a couple to you. Some of you are familiar with. Homer and the Iliad. How many people are familiar with Homer and the Iliad, right? It was written in about 800 BC, but the earliest copies that we have of Homer's Iliad are actually um, from 400 um, BC, 400 years after its writing. We see that the number of copies that we have of the Iliad are an astounding 643. 643 copies. Some of you are familiar with Plato and his writings. Plato wrote in 400 BC, the, most, or the earliest copies of manuscripts of his writing were from around AD 900, about 1300 years after Plato wrote. And of his writings, we have about seven copies we see that there were uh, actually Roman historians like Pliny Secundus who wrote natural history around AD 61 to 113, except what we see that are that the copies that we have of his writings come from about AD 850, uh, sort of a difference of about 750 years. What we have is about seven copies of those. Comparing that to the New Testament, though, Comparing that to what we base our scripture on today, though, we see that the New Testament was, in fact, written between A.D. 50 and 100. We have portions of the New Testament from about 114 A.D., not the original copies, but manuscripts. We have whole books of the Bible from about A.D. 200, and we have complete New Testaments from about A.D. I'm sorry, 325 a difference of, at most, 225 years. And the number of copies of the manuscripts that we have are astounding as compared to the Iliad, which was 643 of the New Testament. We have 5,366. 5,366. So we're basing all of our confidence on history based on these ancient writers, and we may have copies of seven or eight or at most a couple hundred that they've offered to us. But of the New Testament and the manuscripts that have been passed down to us, whole books of the Bible within a short period of time of their writing, we have thousands. Now, whenever we look at the uh, Bible itself, we see that we don't just look at how it was passed down to us, but we also see what the Bible has said about itself, the self-declaration of the Scripture. And in the self-declaration of the Scripture, we see that God has provided a means of declaring its authority. Many of you are familiar with the Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, where it says, all Scripture, not some of it, but all scripture, all scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How many people have read that scripture before? How many people have ever quoted that scripture before? Okay, great. It's a great scripture to stand on, right? But immediately, I remember being a non-Christian. I remember not growing up in the church and having objections, right? Like as if I was in a court of law and immediately saying, objection! You're saying this is the word of God? You're telling me I need to base my life on this? But I've got a few questions for you, man. Anybody ever said that before? Yes, I've got a few questions for you. And here were some of my questions that came up. One of the first ones that came up in my mind and you might have heard over and over again in your conversations with people is that this book that you're saying is authored by God was written by man. How many people have ever heard that before? This book you claim written by God was in fact written by man. Now let me tell you something. (laughs) I uh, thought that for many years and had to contend with the scripture that said it was breathed out by God. But then I came upon a book that actually helped me, not just the Bible, but a book outside of the Bible that was written by a man who was a former atheist. He was a former atheist, and like many former atheists, he went on a journey, uh, an actual, he had a mission to try to discredit and disprove the authority of Jesus as God and the Bible as the word of God. He was being reached out to by friends of his. And he was convinced that he could rescue them from their delusion. And so as a scholar, he went on a search to try to disprove Christianity. And his name was Josh McDowell. Anybody ever heard of Josh McDowell before? And Josh McDowell actually went on this search. And in the midst of his search, actually, because he wanted to be intellectually honest, about his findings, said, wherever the road takes me, I'm going to respond to it in kind. And in the midst of his search, understanding the historicity of Jesus, the historicity of the scriptures, the historicity of all that the scriptures declare, he in fact, just like many others before him and after him, became a Christian. And he was like, whoops, I was wrong. There was a man in Chicago, who used to write for the Chicago Tribune. Many of you are familiar with him as well. He was an investigative journalist for legal matters. His name was Lee Strobel. He also got angry because his wife had become a Christian and started to engage him with the things of God. And he was like, I'm not down with this. I'm going to pull you out of this. And he also went on an investigative search. And in the midst of all of his searching, He himself became, anybody want to guess? A Christian. He wrote many uh, books about his journey called The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, The Case for a Creator, The Case for a Real Jesus. These are all books that we recommend to you if you're looking for information about why we actually believe what we believe. Josh McDowell wrote a book called The New Evidence That Demands a Verdict the new evidence that demands a verdict. And in that, he wrote about why, in fact, we believe that the Bible wasn't just written by man, but it's another word. It's actually the word of God and the inerrant word of God. The inerrant word of God, meaning that not only was it written by God, but it was written by God, and the words that we have today are without error, without mistake. We can actually build our lives on it because God's transmitted it properly and accurately. This is what Josh McDowell said. He said, inerrancy means that when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs, meaning their original writings, properly interpreted, will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether this has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical, or life sciences. The bottom line is that the Bible has been breathed by God. He used men to write out exactly what he wanted them to write. He kept them free from error, but at the same time used their unique personalities. You see that? Free from error, but using their personalities using their unique personalities and styles to convey exactly what he wanted. Peter tells us that holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The idea conveyed is that just as the wind controls the sail of a boat, so also the breath of God controlled the writers of the Bible. The end result was exactly what God intended. Which means... That if it's inspired of God, what we see is that we are tools and God is the writer. We are tools and God is the author. God is basically taking the writers of Scripture. Whenever any of you have had to type, or Lord knows if you're old enough, actually write with pen and paper, like an assignment, actually write something for a class assignment, and you turned it into the professor. Was the pen the author of that piece? Answer me. (laughs) No. The pen was not the author, the pen was the tool utilized by the author to communicate that which the author was trying to communicate. In the same way, God used humanity, whether he used in the Gospels, John or Luke or Mark or or Matthew, the tax collector. He used them within their personalities to write the scripture and he was able in his sovereignty to control the transmission of his thought so that what was received was actually found within the boundaries of God's intent. But then the question becomes, if they're able to be used as a tool, the next thing that came up in my mind was, was it transmitted or translated accurately? It's thousands of years since it's written, right? Was it transmitted or translated accurately? Well, if you know anything about how the Old Testament and the New Testament scribes actually wrote and transmitted the Scripture... It was not just like us pulling an all-nighter and like figuring out like, I don't even know what I'm writing. I'm just trying to get something down on the like paper. Anybody have those sessions before, right? It's sort of like, I just got to, they said, it's got to be 10 pages. It's like, I'm just trying to pump it out, right? That is not what the writers of scripture did. Instead, when they received the scripture, there were a whole class of the Israelites called the scribes. How many people have heard of that before? the scribes. And the scribes, what they would do is they would take the word of God so seriously that they would go through cleansing rites. They would go through a cleansing period. And what they would do is they would have these pens with the quills, right, on them. And they would write so meticulously because it was the word of God that they would cleanse themselves and then begin to look and write, look and write, look and write. And if the quill broke, they would actually break that pen, throw it out, go back to get it going through another process of cleansing, wake themselves up, and say, Let's start this again. Why? Because it's the Word of God that needs to be transmitted accurately down through generations. It was not an arbitrary thing. As far as the translation goes, because we have such a plethora of manuscripts, which go back to the autographs, we're able to see in whole books of the Bible, basically giving us whole copies of the Old Testament, the New Testament. You can look up things like the Dead Sea Scrolls later. Anybody heard of that before? The Dead Sea Scrolls, right? They have all exhibits about it. Basically, we're able to see back with authority and integrity that what we have today was properly translated from the ancient languages of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek that we're reading today in our ESV, NIV. And I don't know about the New Living Translation. I'm just playing with you. I'm just kidding with you. Okay? but we see a translation that's going back to the autographs. Now, if it's translated, we can have confidence in its transmission. Then my final objection came in this. What about those nasty contradictions? Woo! Anybody ever heard that before? What about those contradictions in the Bible, man? You're telling me I need to receive it with authority? What about those contradictions? And I loved it when somebody was bold enough to question me. They're like, really? The contradictions, Roland? Show me one. And I was like, you got a Bible on you? Uh, Let's start in uh, the book of, you know, Joconus. and they're like, man, you don't know the Bible. What are you talking about? And I was looking for contradictions, but it's almost like this, this, this idea, this propaganda that's been perpetuated by people like me who just didn't want to contend with what the scripture said. And so I was willing to ride on the idea that there were contradictions, though I myself couldn't find any. Now, have I read the Bible now? Cover to cover. Yes. Genesis to Revelation. Many times over. Have my Bible daily reading, daily, like going through it over and over and over again. Matter of fact, when I read the Bible the first time, I was looking for some of these contradictions. So it took me five and a half years to read the Bible cover to cover the first time. Why? Do I read that slow? No. <laughs> okay. I do not read that slowly but I was trying to actually understand and I digest the Scripture to actually see if the thing that I was going to build my life on was actually true and accurate. The second time I read it all the way through took me another three and a half years. Guess how many contradictions I found? Zero. I'm going to give you a little uh, chart, and again, this will be on the website for you, about... Um, how you can properly interpret the scripture, specifically giving you principles for understanding apparent discrepancies in the Bible. Apparent discrepancies in the Bible, okay? Now, you can go to this chart later. I'm just going to share a couple with you, but when you're thinking about discrepancies and things you don't understand, the first thing you need to understand is that the unexplained is not necessarily unexplainable. You hear me? The unexplained is not necessarily unexplainable. You get that? Meaning God has specifically chosen to talk about specific people at specific times in history to communicate a specific thing about himself. If he has not chosen to explain everything, that does not mean that it's unexplainable. Secondly, fallible interpretations on the part of individuals do not mean fallible revelation. Just because people misinterpret the scripture doesn't mean that God was wrong whenever he communicated that which he was saying about himself of the world that he created. Number three, you've got to understand the context of the passage. Hello, that's what the theologians call hermeneutics, proper biblical hermeneutics. You've got to understand the Bible in its context. You can't take it out of context and make it say whatever you want it to say. Do you know that the Bible says there is no God? Did you know that? Did you know that the whole context is the fool says in his heart, there is no God? Gotcha. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Proper context makes all the difference. Number four, interpret, you've got to interpret difficult passages in light of clear ones. Do you hear me? People have all these stumbling blocks about all these issues that they're trying to say, I can't accept the scripture because I don't understand why he would say that. Well, are you interpreting it in the context or in the light of clear scripture? Because as we talked about already, it's a whole. It's one story. And Paul said, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God and not just its part. Number five, you cannot base teaching on obscure passages. Hello. You cannot base your teaching on obscure passages, building theology and doctrine around things that you just don't understand. Number six, The Bible, as already mentioned, is a human book with human characteristics, meaning that God was using the personality of the writers to communicate. We see that Peter, who was actually the source of the gospel of Mark, right? Anybody notice a sense of impetuousness in that that gospel? Everything was immediate, immediately, immediately. Jesus did things immediately, right? Why? Because Peter was an impetuous man. Whereas John was all talking about love and You know, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, the meaning of life, man. You know, he's a little bit more of a, right, personality-based. God used it all. Number seven, just because a report is incomplete does not mean that it is false. Just because that a report is incomplete doesn't mean that it is false, Let me give you an example. How many people have ever read the Gospels before? You see Jesus healing people. In one account, there's one blind man. In another account, there are two. And you're like, wait a minute. Which was it, man? One or two. I don't know if I can believe the scripture. How about this, man? Two different people were reporting. Somebody wanted to talk about one of them. Another one wanted to talk about two. Has anyone ever seen an accident before? Been in a crime scene? Well, hopefully not. Okay. <laughs> seen an accident before. And in the accident, the police officer comes up and says, what happened here? And you talk about the fact that somebody ran the red light and smashes into the light like another individual, right? And then another person, same, um, same report, says, hey, listen, I don't know. They were texting. And, you know, like, I don't know what happened. They must have collided, Right? talking about the same exact thing from two different angles. Just because they're two different angles doesn't mean they contradict one another. Make sense? Hello? Come on now, we've got to be thinkers. We've got to be people who understand this. And if you're not thinking about this, you better believe that the people you're trying to reach out to are. You better believe that the people who are unconvinced about who God is and how to serve Him are thinking through these things. Number eight. New uh, New Testament citations of the Old Testament need not always be exact. What do I mean by that? That the Bible does not, I'm sorry, that the Bible uses non-technical everyday language whenever it's talking, meaning that the Hebrew language was often a pictorial language, a pictorial language where you are describing truths in imagery, and so, whenever they were describing things, they were describing things according to images that could be properly understood to, by the listeners. In the same way, we see that the Bible does not always necessarily approve of all that it records. Now, what do I mean by that? Ooh, ooh. The Bible doesn't always approve of everything that it records. What that means is if you hear the scripture say, thus says the Lord, you better live by it. But if you hear the Bible saying, and King David took Bathsheba into his house and lay with her, even though she had another husband, God's only reporting that which happened, not approving of what King David did. Do you understand the difference? So we see all types of things recorded in the scripture. When God's speaking about it, that's what we live by. But if it's just being recorded, you better believe he's got an opinion about it. And within the whole context of scripture, you find out what that opinion is. Okay. Some people are like, man, my brain hurts. It's too much. All right, listen. Listen. Keep up, keep going. The Bible also uses round numbers as well as exact numbers, and the Bible uses different literary devices. An error in a copy does not equate to an error in the original. General statements also don't necessarily mean universal promises. When God's speaking according to his word, sometimes you hear him speaking in context to particular people at a particular time. And then we as a church want to claim it all for ourselves as if it belongs to everybody. Whose fault is that if it doesn't happen? Is it God's or is it ours? Right, because not everything is universal. Sometimes he says, this word applies to this people at this time, and these other words apply to everybody, right? Like the salvation um, message, is that for just some people or everybody? It's for everybody, right? But when when he talks about Babylon coming and taking us into captivity, was that for the Israelites several hundred years ago, or was that for us today? The Israelites, right, right? There was a particular context, prophecy fulfilled in that context. Make sense? Keeping up? Okay. Let's move on. 2 Timothy 2.15. He says this, and this is a challenge for the church. Quite frankly, we're often spiritually lazy. Hello? Can everybody admit that? we're spiritually lazy. We don't love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength as he's commanded us to. We just eat whatever is handed to us and then get thrown off whenever we haven't thought through the things that actually will hold us. But 2 Timothy, Paul was writing to his disciple and he said, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth which means you've got to be a student of the Word of God to actually be able to build your life on it. You've got to be a student to be able to build your life on it. There was a man named Mortimer Adler, and he said, among the major religions of the world, only three religions can um, claim to have a supernatural foundation, to be found in a sacred scripture that purports to be a divine revelation. The three religions distinguished by this claim are Judaism, Christianity and the religion of Islam. Among the other religions, only some claim to have logical and factual truth, but the truth they claim to have is of human, not divine origin. He's saying that the scripture that we have in front of us, the Bible that we have in front of us, is unique. Now that's well and good, but my question always becomes is it pragmatic? Is it practical? Does it actually work? Anybody pragmatic like me? That's fine if you want to talk theory, but does it actually work? Come on, man. That is my heart and that is my hope. Now, the beauty of the scripture is that we have corroboration. And what you don't hear people say is that they regret following the words of scripture. (laughs) You don't hear people who actually put it into practice say they regret it. You don't hear someone say, Ten years ago, I decided to read and follow Scripture, build my business, nurture my marriage, raise my kids, handle my money, and take care of my body according to the wisdom of Scripture, and I completely regret it. (laughs) You don't hear people saying that. In fact, what you hear them testifying to is Psalm 19. And Psalm 19, starting in verse 7, actually says this, that the law of the Lord, which is the Word of God, you know what it is? It's perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Meaning like many of you are trying to figure out how to live in a non-Christian or a pagan culture. Well, here's the thing. You can stand on the precepts and the commands of the Lord, and there's a testimony within people that let them know that his commands are just right. I love us just talking to Ryan about one of his bosses at work and how he's always in the context of even leading his company, always throwing scripture into his motivational speeches. And people are like, Yeah, that's awesome. You're so wise. He's like, I'm not wise. It's God who's wise. Because the commands of the Lord, they're right and they lead to life. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether more to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold sweeter also than the honey and drippings of the honeycomb now that's fine if it works but the beauty of the scripture is that it's a universality universality and invitation that it provides no other sacred scriptures invite all people of all time no other scripture invites all people of all time. In Genesis, we talk about Abraham, the father of the faith, and Sarah, the mother of the faith, right? And we see in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, when God was starting the Jewish nation, which would ultimately lead to the Christ, the Messiah, who would come, he actually said and gave the promise in this way. He said, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So literally God through his scripture being passed down through these people was actually going to provide a universal salvation through Jesus Christ to those who would repent of their sin and believe the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Unique to the scripture, unique. People are always talking about things that are divisive. Well, let me tell you what's not divisive. God's love. God's love welcomes the world. And he says, Let me tell you something. My commands will divide a household. He said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Right? Because you've got to stand on the truth of who I am. But at the same time, I'm telling you through my word, I'm inviting everyone. The universality of the scripture. When you're wondering about the reliability of the Bible, you need to consider these facts. But more than that, remember that the Bible is God's love letter to the world, to you and to the world. You need to open it, you need to read it, and you need to consider how God wants you to live out his kingdom calling. Jesus, whenever he was about to leave the earth, he, he actually said things this way. He said in Luke chapter 24, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you. These are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you. Not only Jesus, but the prophets are the writers of the New Testament scriptures. They were continually reiterating the Old Testament prophets that were clearly affirmed as the word of God. And he said, these are the scriptures that I've spoken to you. And they had a purpose behind them. I'm going to clarify that purpose for you. Many of us today or in life have been on metaphorically what we call the Emmaus road. How many people are familiar with the Emmaus road? Okay. The Emmaus road after Jesus' resurrection, right? You remember that there were people who were disappointed with his death, didn't really understand that he was going to be resurrected and come back from the dead after he had paid the price on the cross for their sins. And so he showed up and started walking with people, right? Some of the same people he had spent his earthly ministry teaching. And he was like, They didn't recognize him at first. And he says, do you believe the things that I've been telling you? I've got to help you understand by opening your minds to the scripture. You're going to understand it all by understanding that these words that I've spoken to you are not only reliable, but they're going to help you understand who I am and how to properly relate with me. And so on the Emmaus road, he said, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the Torah, right? And the prophets and the Psalms not will be, not should be, but must be fulfilled. It must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. He opened their minds to understand the Scripture and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and the forgive for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He ultimately said, hey, listen, guys, you need to have confidence in this word because it all speaks about me. It's all about me. The law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, It's all pointing to me and the redemption that I would bring for the whole world through repentance and belief in my name. And so if you want to live as a Christian, if you want to build a life that God can not only bless, but he's actually approving of and affirming of, you have got to come into agreement with his everlasting word. And without his word, there is no knowing him. Without his word, there is no pleasing him. But because we have these things that give us great confidence in not only who he is, but what he said, we can respond to the good news with great confidence, with great faith, because he's shown us not only who he is, but what he said is reliable and true. And it will never, ever pass away. In Jesus' name. Amen? All right. I know that was a lot. You guys are patient and great, (laughs) but it will be on the website for you. What we're going to do now is we're going to go back into worship. And as always, we're going to have a time of communion. Maybe some of you in here have been actually thinking through, can I actually put my confidence in the living God based on his word? This is the moment of that consideration. This is the moment of that response. So please, wherever you find yourself, respond to God according to his word, and let's see Jesus make us all new. Amen? All right.